Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Our scripture for today's sermon comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, and the word of God speaks to us. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. Father, that's not the first time I've heard your word read this morning, and yet it strikes me with the same weight and the same substance as it did the first time. Because I I think, in fact, eternity won't give us enough time to plumb the depths of your glory that we see even in these nine verses of Isaiah. Spirit of the living God, would you open our eyes to see Would you let us, like, be faithful to what God commands? God commands us in the beginning of this passage to behold his servant. And Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would let us do that. Let me see the divine servant king. Let all of us see him. Jesus, it's you. And I ask that um, you would grant us faith to see you, to take you at your word, and to build our lives around all that you declare yourself to be in this passage. So would you do miraculous things, Father, that far transcend um, any of our ability, my ability to speak or anyone here's ability to hear? Do that, we ask in Jesus' name, and for his glory, amen. Amen. 
humanity longs for justice. Like every single one of us is driven virtually all the time, whether consciously or subconsciously, by a desire for justice. We yearn for things to be right. And though we may disagree on what constitutes justice and we arguably disagree over how we pursue it or how one attains it, we're at least unified in our longing to see things in the world right. We we long for justice even if we're divided in our pursuit of it which kind of is the problem because though we're unified as human beings yearning for justice, we're regularly divided in our pursuit of it. And in our pursuit of it, we're regularly given over to shallow, quick fix attempts at trying to accomplish it. Or we're fascinated with and caught up in Schemes and hucksters and corrupted forms of power that are laboring to accomplish justice. And on top of that, our pursuit of justice is compromised by our own wickedness. Like we can be zealous about resolving problems of injustice in our world, but we can't do anything until we own the fact that we are part of the problem. My own injustice contributes to the mess. So what is it about me that thinks that my messed up, wicked, crooked, misaligned desires could bring about the thing that all humanity longs for? Humanity's pursuit of justice has landed on us like someone who's tried to flip a house. Has anybody lived in the past or is presently living in a house that's been flipped? Man, God bless you. It's, it's a rough thing to do. You, you live in a house that's flipped and you find that someone tried to solve a problem by taking a shortcut. And in taking a shortcut to solve often a superficial problem, they caused multiple, way more significant, always more expensive problems underneath. And actually, God's word bears witness to us that all of us live in a universe that's been flipped, justice speaking. Like in our pursuit to repair what's broken, it's all like we've been house flippers. Whether we've been motivated by good or ill, that's the place we find ourselves. And what I want us to hear this morning from God's word in Isaiah is there is no shortcut by which we can accomplish justice. Despite our passion as a culture for hacks, there is no justice hack. There is no shortcut to accomplish what all humanity longs for. The Messiah is the only hope for a truly just world. Let me say that again. The Messiah, God's anointed king, Jesus, is the only hope for a truly just world. 
That's the essence of what we celebrate as Christians. It's the essence of what we celebrate at Christmas. And it is the essence of what Isaiah is announcing to us this morning. Now, by the time we reach Isaiah chapter 42, in fact, by the time we reach Isaiah chapter 40, the people of God are in the midst of chaos, crisis, utter destruction, and utter despair. Because Babylon, which at that time was the most powerful empire in the world, had invaded Jerusalem, defiled and destroyed the temple, murdered a vast number of the population of Israel, and those whom they hadn't murdered, they had conscripted as slaves and now taken the Jewish slaves into captivity in Babylon. The people that Isaiah are addressing in Isaiah chapter 42 are in the midst of exile. Slaves outside of the land of their birth, outside of the land of their promise, and outside of the temple, the place that God had given them to pursue him and encounter him and experience his presence. It is dark and dire. And Isaiah's message to these people is twofold. Isaiah offers words of judgment and words of comfort, alternating, in fact, throughout the entirety of this book. In in, in the words of judgment, Isaiah tells these people, hey, you need to open your eyes and realize you're here in exile. You're living as slaves because of your own injustice and because of your own idolatry. Isaiah repeatedly tells the people of God, hey, the predicament that you're in is your own doing. The mess that you're in comes from your own hands. How many Christmas parties do you think Isaiah got invited to? Maybe maybe not the happiest guy to have around. But in the midst of his words of judgment, he regularly alternates words of promise, words of hope. And he says to the people of God, hey, though you have made a mess of your life, though your own injustice and though your own idolatry has rendered you as slaves in exile, God will redeem you. God will restore you. God will cleanse you from your iniquity. God will deliver you from your sin. God will deliver you from captivity, and it's these promises of hope that we've been looking at together in the season of Advent. The first week of Advent, we looked together at Isaiah chapter 9, where God promises his people, hey, I'm going to send you a king to deliver you from captivity. And then last week, we looked together at Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah talks about the nature of the kingdom of God. Now think about this. In chapter 9, he says, hey, listen to me. God will send you a king. And in chapter 11, he says, here's the way this king is going to rule. And when we get to chapter 42, he announces the king that he's promised. All this anticipation builds. All this intensity moves towards crescendo. And then we have this awkward moment because having promised a king and having described his kingdom, God says to his people in Isaiah chapter 42, verse one, behold my servant. And he offers us in this moment, this glorious paradox 
Because we're like, wait a minute. I thought we were waiting for a king to deliver us. And in verse 1, God continues and he says, My servant is the one who will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, that's what a king does. That, that's a job description of a king. But God has said, Behold my servant, king. And, and now we have this paradox. It's like, well, wait a minute. I, I can deal with the authority of God. But I don't have a, a, a realm in which I can see God serving me. I, I want to work for God. I want to check off boxes and I want to get my grades and I want God to high five me and tell me I'm doing okay. And God says, I don't work that way. Nobody works for me. I work for you. God says, open your eyes in the midst of the calamity you inhabit and behold the one I dispatched to serve you. But he's a unique servant, God says, because he's, he's a king. This servant who is a king, this king who is a servant, and it forces us into this beautiful and glorious bind. So here's what I want us to do together this morning. I want us to do three things. First and foremost, in alignment with the command of verse 1, behold my servant, I want us to look at this servant king, this divine king servant. I want us to look at him. And then secondly, we're told in verse 1 that he will bring forth justice. I, I want us to inhabit this paradox by beholding the glory of the servant and investigating the mission of the king. He will bring forth justice. I want us to explore what biblical justice is and what that means that this divine servant king is accomplishing. I want us to look at him. I want us to explore what biblical justice is. And then thirdly and finally, I want us to ask, what does that mean for us? I want you to respond to him. I don't want you to merely look at him and walk away as if he's something you can appreciate or have opinions about and be utterly indifferent to. Think about the way we use language all the time. If someone says, hey, come look at this deal. And you're like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. That's fascinating. And in each instance, you're saying, I don't really care about that. It has no impact on my affections or my desires. I won't build anything in my life around that, but thanks. And that, that's not an option when it comes to this servant king. He actually demands a response. So I want us to look at him. I want us to talk about biblical justice. And then I want us, by God's grace, to respond. But let's take the second thing first. Let's talk about justice, and then we'll move to the servant that brings it. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 42. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If you don't, we'll have the verses. We should have the verses on the screen behind me. The word justice is key in this passage, and we know this because it occurs three times. Look at verse 1. My servant, he will bring forth justice. Look again in verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Look again in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Justice is the key thing that God's Messiah is doing. 
like the, the longing of all the inhabitants of the earth throughout all human history, God says, my servant will accomplish the thing you yearn for. But we gotta be careful because we need to understand how this word is being used in the context of Isaiah. And if we understand the context of Isaiah and the context of all the Old Testament, the word justice biblically has way more significance and is a way bigger thing than the way we make the word function. Justice is more than legal correctness or obedience. Biblical justice requires both individual and corporate righteousness. We see in the scriptures that you cannot experience justice apart from righteousness. Justice isn't some, you know, category or concept outside of you that you don't have to participate in personally. Justice requires righteousness individually and corporately. Biblical justice includes what's true. It has to be built on truth and it shapes the way we interact with one another. You can read about that in Zechariah chapter 7. Biblical justice outlines God's perfect design for perfect civilization. If we think about the word less as like a buzzword in our current cultural chaos and cultural wars, and more like justice functioning as God's blueprint for the way everything is supposed to be. That's the way justice functions in the Old Testament. Listen to Ray Ortland from his commentary in Isaiah, and I quote here. The word translated justice includes within its scope all our longings for a better life and a better world. A just world to Isaiah is human society as God means it to be with no corrupting idolatries. Injustice is more than a political dysfunction. It's a spiritual evil and a denial of God. Read those last two sentences with me again because they are critical. Injustice, Ortland says, is more than a political dysfunction. It's a spiritual evil, a denial of God. You see, we think of injustice as being rooted in someone else's problems or some political system or the moral corruption of someone else. But actually, God is telling us that the root of injustice is not political. It's an idolatrous issue in the heart of every human soul. The root of injustice is spiritual evil. It's a denial of God's authority, God's ability, God's sufficiency, and God's design for the entirety of the cosmos. Maybe an easier way for us to think about it is um, idolatry. Idolatry, like the, the reason why it's the root of injustice is because at its root, idolatry is our desire to shortcut God's intentions, to get what God has appointed, but through our own means. Does that make sense? We, we often think of idolatry, I would assume most of us, in terms of like primitive people and pagan rituals and carved images and people bowing down to them. 
But biblically speaking, an idol is anything or idea or person that I look to and believe that that thing can supply for me what God alone can. Anything, any idea, any person you look to and think, if I just have this thing, it will make me okay. It will make the world as it should be. Then you are an idolater. And and, and we experience both the sin of idolatry and the temptation to idolatry all the time. Calvin famously said that our hearts are like factories for idols. You give me anything, even a good thing, and I'll make it an ultimate thing. I will take supplements and make them substitutes. That is the nature of the fallen human soul. And Isaiah makes it clear that it's that idolatrous inclination that is the root of all injustice. Idolatry is our attempt to find a shortcut, a hack. And I want to say it again. The servant of God, the Messiah, is the only hope for true justice in the world. There is no hack for justice. This is why God God beckons all who will hear his word in Isaiah to look at his servant. Look back to verse one. Behold, God says, my servant. He begins this section simply by saying, look at him. Hey, the one I've promised, here he is. Look at him. And and this is an exercise, not just in like looking at something, but in contrasting the reality of the servant and all that he supplies in contrast to idols and their impotency and the failure of those who build their lives on idols. Look back in chapter 41, if you've got a Bible, and look at verse 24 and in verse 29. In both these places, God says, hey, look at the idols. Look, Look how impotent they are. Look how futile and ridiculous they are. Hey, look at the people who build their lives around idols. And look how powerless they are. Look at my servant. There is no hack. There is no shortcut. There is no other means to accomplish justice in the world, God says. My servant alone will accomplish it. And then as we step into gazing upon this servant, we realize that the paradox doesn't end in his nature as a servant king. Everything about the way this king accomplishes justice is paradoxical. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah 42. God tells us, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. God says, hey, my king isn't coming like other political leaders that you're used to. He's not shaping his PR team. He's not working on his campaign. He's not laboring to control the public discourse. He's not coming like other kings. He goes on in verse 3 to say, he's, he's not going to crush Broken people, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In verse 2 and verse 25 of chapter 41, we've heard reference to Cyrus. 
And Cyrus, like every other king, explicitly and unapologetically builds his kingdom on the backs of broken people. God says, Cyrus builds his kingdom on top of the oppressed. My, my king, my servant, is drawn to the oppressed. He doesn't come to build his kingdom on top of them. His kingdom is by its very nature building them up. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The image of a candle flickering that's about to burn out is clear enough. God says there's people like that and my servant won't destroy them He'll heal them. He'll uphold them. He'll strengthen them. He's not going to snuff out a candle that's barely flickering and about to go out. But the language of bruising isn't something we're familiar with, I don't think. Because we talk about a bruise as a superficial thing. In fact, we say to one another, hey, chill, it's just a bruise. You're going to be fine. I had, a, I had an athletic trainer in college that would slap bruises and laugh at you when he slapped them. He would say, hey, it's just a bruise. I can't tape it. It's not torn. It's not broken. You're fine. Go practice. It's just a bruise. Smack. But, but that, that's not the language that Isaiah is using here. He's talking about a reed that's been broken over. Bruising isn't the appropriate concept for us. This is something that's been decimated. It's been obliterated. You look at it and you say, there's no way that thing survives. I got a tree in my front yard that I don't know how this happened. A utility vehicle hit this branch of it. And this branch, it's such a mystery to me how the branch is even hanging on the tree. Because it's a big branch and the connective tissue that appears to be holding it there is tiny. The only reason why I haven't pruned it myself is I'm kind of rooting for it. <laughs> but I mean, I look at this thing and if you stood in my yard with me right now, you'd like pat me on the back and go, no way this thing has leaves on it come spring. And God says, that's who my servant's after. That's who my servant is looking for, the weak, the flickering, the destitute, the impoverished, those who are so broken down and so anemic and so disfigured that people look at him and go, no way, no way that person makes it. Does that describe any of you? Do, you? do you look at yourself and think, man, God would be really blessed to have me on his team. I'm smart, I'm savvy, I'm skilled. Or do you look in the mirror of your soul and say, and if people knew what was really inside of me, the branch is barely hanging on. God says, you're precisely who my servant is after. And that's good news for me. I hope that's, hope that's good news for some of you. Look at my servant, God says. He, he's not like other kings. He's not coming to flex and to floss and to make everyone think how awesome he is. He's coming to serve. I mean, think about this. Jesus is explicit about this. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to be a servant, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus saying, hey, I know my job description. I know who I am. This servant is like no other. And look in verse 6, jump ahead to verse 6. God says his mission will be in righteousness. 
I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I get confused reading Isaiah. I'm like, who's talking and who's being addressed? If you look at verses one to four, God is speaking to the people of Israel about his Messiah. And if you look at verses five to nine, God is speaking to his Messiah about his mission. God says to the Messiah, God says to the servant, God says to the king, hey, your mission will be to accomplish justice the only way it can be accomplished with righteousness. We're constantly witnessing fights. If you read the paper or read whatever form of media you read, you can distill almost everything we're carping about to people who are trying to separate justice and righteousness. And some people want justice and don't care about righteousness. And some people presume that it's possible to want righteousness and not care about justice. Both of those things are absurd. And the servant who God wants you to look at, his mission is the pursuit of justice in righteousness. And then look at verse four. Go back to verse four, chapter 42. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And on the nose, you're like, okay, that's cool. You're just telling me that he's going to accomplish his job. Except there's more there. God's inviting us to more poetic and powerful beauty. He's making a word play on the images before. He's talked about this flickering candle and this bruised reed, and he uses the same vocabulary. And he says, he won't burn out or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And notice he doesn't say, hey, my servant won't falter. My servant won't be crushed. He doesn't say that. He says, my servant won't falter, won't burn out, won't be crushed until... He's accomplished justice for the nations. Don't you understand? The Messiah, the servant king, came to be crushed. That was his mission. He he says, hey, the way I'm going to accomplish justice throughout the earth is I will be crushed for the injustice of your idolatry. This servant says, I will hold fast my course despite opposition, despite loneliness, despite slander, despite being misunderstood, I will not flicker out or get crushed until I've accomplished my mission. And God will tell us explicitly in chapter 53 of Isaiah that it was his pleasure to crush the servant. He sent the servant to be crushed for you. Here's my question. How do you respond to him? Because when God tells you to behold him, he's not saying, hey, just casually look at it. Go about your day. No, he's actually demanding that we respond. Look at him. And answer the question, what does that mean for you? What does the reality of this servant king mean for you? Offer to you, require from you, supply for you. Look at him. Look at him. And what does your apprehension of him mean? This morning, 
I, I called out to Katie early in the morning to come out on the front porch and look at the sunrise. I don't know if I've ever seen a sky painted like I saw it this morning. And we have the best sunrises and sunsets in the world. You, you can beat the topography of Oklahoma everywhere. You can't beat the sunrises and sunsets anywhere. And I, I get Katie, she's like in her robe, just trying to wipe sleep out of her eyes and drink coffee. I was like, come out here with me right now and stand in the yard in your robe and look at that. Look at it. And then it's like, all right, cool. I'm gonna go downtown. I love you, I'll see you at the 11. I, I didn't want her to build her life around that sunrise. I just wanted her to see it and go about her day. That's not the way Isaiah is asking you to look. When he says, behold, He's actually urging and calling for a response. What do you need from him? Let me ask you the question this way. If he is who he says he is, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for your hopes? What does it mean for your fears? What does it mean for your sins? What does it mean for your longing for justice in the earth? If he were to stand before you right now, and he is, and offer to take something from you, what do you want him to take away? Real question. If he were to stand before you right now, which he is, and offer to give you something. What do you need this glorious one to supply for you? Let me close with another quotation from Ray Ortland, and I'll be out of your way. This is from Ortland's commentary from Isaiah. He says this. In verses one to four then, God presents his servant to us. In doing so, he's asking us to step over a line. On this side of the line, we might appreciate Christ, but we'll deal with him only on our own terms. We don't delight in him as the savior of the world and our savior. More than we want to admit, we trivialize and evade him. We exalt our own potential and wisdom. On the other side of that line, we humble ourselves. We set no preconditions. We say to Jesus Christ, Lord, you are the only hope of the world and you are my only hope. I admit my share of responsibility for the world as it is. Forgive my injustice, destroy my idols, and make me the kind of human that lives up to the name. You alone are my salvation and I give my allegiance entirely to you. God wants every one of us to step over that line right now from pride to worship. Will you do that or will you refuse Jesus Christ? Which will it be? Will you stand with me and pray? Jesus, I ask that you would carry us across the line, 
beckon us across the line, woo us across the line. Bring us to a place right now where we have nothing in ourselves to hope in and everything in you to hope in now and forever. God, for some in this room, what they need to do right now is just step across the line and they need to, instead of appreciating you from a distance, they need to orient their lives around the divine servant king. God, there are others in this room that they they have done that by your grace to no boast of their own. They've said, I saw him, he called to me and I came. But they need to receive your love or forgiveness in ways that they haven't or offer forgiveness in ways that they've withheld. Jesus, would you show yourself to us? Would you lead us in how to respond? Give us hearts that say, we're yours. Thank you that the thing we long for, you supply. God, forgive us that the thing we long for, like we're the ones that messed it up. But you supply it for us. You took the wrath of God for our injustice and idolatry. And you offer us your righteousness.